Written and read by Oliver Gray. Chapter 2. Researching the history of Corey Zander had taken a lot of effort, but actually been quite fun. Most of the information came from an obscure and strangely titled fanzine called Bucketful of Brains, which specialised in Americana music. Then there had been an article by Alan Jones in Uncut. Jones, having previously been the editor of Melody Maker, contributed nostalgic articles looking back at the wildest days of rock and roll. It seemed that Corey fitted neatly into that bracket. Spending a lot of time on the internet and in Winchester's library, recently rechristened for no particular reason as a discovery centre, Ben gradually reconstructed Corey's life. Corey Zander, born Alexander Cruz, was the only son of Pino Cruz and his wife Aileen, delivered in their small house in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, in January 1958. Corey's great grandfather was a Choctaw Indian who had arrived in Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears, the popular term for the forced relocation of Native American nations from the southeast of the U.S. in accordance with the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The expression Trail of Tears refers to the removal of the Choctaw Nation in 1831 from their native homelands in Florida, Mississippi and North Carolina. Many of the relocated Native Americans, including Cherokee and Choctaw, died of starvation, exposure or disease on the cold and chaotic trail to Oklahoma. The Choctaw were the first to be removed, and 17,000 families made the move to Oklahoma, originally called Indian Territory. Having effectively been ethnically cleansed, they eventually became known as the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. By the time Pino Cruz was born in 1938, the Dust Bowl existence of his family had become bearable, if hard. Pino himself was able as an adult to earn a tolerable living as a general handyman in and around Tahlequah, while Aileen looked after young Alexander. It was when Alexander was seven that Pino was accused of stealing from one of his clients. As it happened, it was a bottle of bourbon that went missing from a house where he was repairing the roof while the owner was out. He couldn't deny it, as the bottle, now a couple of fingers lighter, was found at the bottom of his tool bag the next day, when the angry homeowner called in the police. Dissatisfied with the quality of Pino's work, and probably looking for an excuse not to pay, the owner pressed charges on what was, on the face of it, a trivial case, and Pino was fined, but what was worse, disgraced within the local community, where the word spread that he was an untrustworthy person to employ. There was another unfortunate result of his foolishness, as those few slugs of deadly liquid reawoke an interest in liquor, which had long lain dormant. Financial necessity and the strong disapproval of his wife Aileen, who was frightened of the effect of whiskey on Pino's temperament, had ensured many years of sobriety up to that point. It wasn't quite on the level of Shakespearean tragedy, perhaps, but that light-fingered moment represented a significant turning point in Pino's life. If he'd been able to rationalise it, he'd have said, What the hell? If I work hard and a small transgression can pretty much ruin my life, what exactly is the point? Unable to find work and finding the stress of responsibility for a young son tough to cope with, Pino took to thieving on a regular basis, 
using the proceeds to fund visits of varying success to the nearby Indian casino. When he won, he would celebrate with whiskey. To his credit, he purposely didn't drink in front of Alexander, keeping his binges until after the lad was in bed. It did mean that he was normally ill-tempered in the morning, but he wasn't the kind of drunk who'd lay hands on his wife or son. He just felt unhappy most of the time, and the atmosphere would surely have been bad enough to encourage Aileen to leave if she'd had the choice. But she had nowhere to go. It would have been advantageous from the point of view of creating a myth about the upbringing of the future rock star Alexander if his father Pina had died a violent death in a car crash or a bar fight. But the reality was more mundane. In 1968, when Alexander was just ten, Pino's liver gave out, and Aileen was left alone to look after the boy. By that time, the family had long since been forced to leave their small house in Tahlequah, and now resided in a quite scruffy trailer in the woods near the Illinois River just off Highway 62. But as so often seems to be the case, the cliché applied, that they were poor, but they were happy. Well, they weren't at all happy that Pino had passed away, as he had been basically a good guy, who had tried to do his best for them. But Aileen was a particularly kind, caring and understanding mother, who took her responsibilities seriously. Aileen, who worked as many hours as she could get in a hair salon in Wagoner, not far from Tahlequah, had long harboured a wish to be a teacher. This was a wish that could never officially be fulfilled because of the lack of requisite qualifications. But it did come in useful when, almost inevitably, the teenage Alexander began to be an unreliable attender at school. It was a pain to get there, especially in winter, when a lengthy walk to the nearest road to pick up the school bus could be an unwelcome prospect in the early mornings. Aileen certainly didn't sanction these absences, which were followed up half-heartedly by the school authorities, but she did believe Alexander's pleas that he often felt unwell with stomach pains and headaches. Please could he stay at home, just for today? OK, just this once, dear, she would accept, realising she would have to beg for extra shifts if she was to purchase more heating oil for the mobile home, which was isolated and could be bone-crackingly cold. It would be many years before the concept of homeschooling would become commonplace and monitored by education authorities. But in a way, Aileen and Alexander were pioneers in the field. Mathematics, and particularly literature, were on the agenda, as Aileen made sure that the many absences from school were not to hinder Alexander's education. He never told her, but in later life he realised that the stomach cramps were most probably caused by the sneering comments of his classmates about his poor home and his ostracised father. Yes, his therapist in the 80s would confirm, you were suffering from stress. This was the pattern for much of Alexander's teens. Most afternoons, Aileen would be collected by a work colleague for shifts at the salon, which would be the opportunity for her son to pick away at the various decrepit musical instruments his dad had left behind. Pina had claimed there was a rich musical tradition in his Native American background, but had shown little skill himself. Occasionally, as the alcoholism took hold, he had deluded himself with the hope that he might be able to make some cash by performing in the bars of northeast Oklahoma. But the bitter reality was that he could hardly play, and he certainly couldn't sing. Listening to Alexander, 
Aileen was surprised and gratified to begin to hope that maybe there was indeed a talent there, and that it had simply skipped a generation. It certainly wasn't from her side of the family, white middle class with no musical instruments anywhere near their home, and Aileen was pleased to give Alexander every encouragement. The teenage Alexander tried out the banjo, but found it displeasingly harsh and unyielding, at least in his hands. But armed with his dad's ancient acoustic guitar and a harmonica in a holster he crafted himself from an old metal coat hanger, he could really fancy himself as a Bob Dylan figure. As he droned out folksy classics like Down by the Riverside, When the Saints Go Marching In and Oh Susanna, he struggled with finger-picking, so his style ended up pretty much as the kind of strumming beyond which most people's guitar skills don't develop. He even tried his hand at writing a few songs of his own, using his limited arsenal of chords. But really, he didn't have much in the way of subject matter to work with. Aileen was impressed by these works of art, and proud of her boy when he would play them to her on her return from work. But she, of course, was biased. It was inevitable that Aileen would eventually meet a new man, and it brought a welcome change in circumstances to the small family. Lance Wilson was a friend of Aileen's boss and ran a small diner in the centre of Tahlequah, aimed at the motorists and tourists plying the historic road Route 66, which ran right through the town. Lance, not long divorced, was an astute businessman and all-round good guy, and before long, Life in the apartment above the restaurant was a good deal more comfortable and convenient than it had been in the trailer in the woods. The trailer was sold to a dodgy-looking couple who would doubtless use it as a drug den, but then that wasn't the cruise's problem anymore. Aileen was now in a position to do more shifts, and Alexander, recently turned 16, was able to earn some cash as well by means of the traditional rite of passage of burger flipping. He was no longer required to attend high school, but he had survived that long on account of being unobtrusive and cooperative on the occasions that he had been there. He certainly never caused any trouble, and in the main teachers had been impressed by how he had dealt with his unconventional upbringing. Half-hearted attempts to persuade him to stay on for further education after high school failed, because having moved into town, Alex, as he was now more coolly known, was in the process of developing a social life. Alex hadn't exactly been a loner, but the circumstances in which he had previously lived made it hard to get out and about. Two other friends who had quit school at the same time as him were Jesse Allen and Mark Houghton. With a mutual interest in music, it was inevitable that they would form their first band together. Mark played fiddle, while both the others fancied themselves as guitarists. In the end, Alex conceded the more prominent role and agreed to teach himself double bass on an ancient instrument that Lance Wilson brought for him from a second-hand music shop in Tulsa. Using the hours when the restaurant was closed, the trio christened themselves the Woodsmen, in honour of Alex's old home, and rehearsed enough folk songs to be able to get some unpaid gigs in a couple of the local bars. Using their dubious carpentry skills, they even constructed a makeshift stage in Wilson's restaurant, which he predictably called Sir Lance a lot. They built up quite a following as passing truckers and local drinkers chomped their Lance burgers and swigged their Route 66 beer. And then, punk. Well, it happened to many bands around 1978. Not only were the woodsmen planning to go electric and add drums, 
They were about to turn into a kind of band for which their particular corner of Oklahoma was unprepared. The way it came about was pretty fateful. A regular customer at Sir Lancelot, and indeed an occasional solo player there, was David Blue, drummer of a respected local soft rock band called Bliss. It was David who told Alex about a show that Bliss had been booked for at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, opening for an English touring band. Would he like to come along for the ride? It promised to be something really special. Alex was doubtful. Kane's Ballroom, while a legendary venue, was known for Western Swing, a type of music that the woodsmen were trying to get away from. But the idea of being an honorary roadie for the night, carrying in David's drums and helping to set them up, was tempting. The date was January the 11th, 1978. The admission fee, which Alex was excused on account of being crew, was $3.50, and the headlining band, all the way from London, England, was the Sex Pistols. The following night at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco was to be the Pistols' last ever gig, but no one knew that at the time. Presumably some of the people in attendance had known roughly what awaited them. Certainly Alex and the band were well aware of punk. He'd read interviews with the Ramones in Rolling Stone, and had already booked tickets to see them, due to play at Cane's a month later. The cool, high-energy rush of bands like the Ramones and the New York Dolls was appealing to the teenage woodsmen, feeling pretty isolated in their geographical and cultural backwater. Rural Oklahoma was a conservative and deeply Christian environment. Nonetheless, without the offer of a lift and a free ticket, Alex wouldn't have bothered with the Sex Pistols, as their reputation for chaotic live shows didn't appeal to the musician in him, even though this was their first and as it turned out, only American tour. The band's reputation had preceded them, and outside the quaint ballroom, quite a large crowd of banner-waving, Bible-punching protesters had gathered in the road. One of the banners read, Life is rotten without God's only begotten Jesus. The audience was an uneasy mix of punk followers, the normal Keynes audience, and the merely curious, some seeking trouble. There were also a number of journalists from national music magazines and a smattering of undercover police on the alert for any potentially lewd behaviour on stage. Alex was unaware of any of this, armed with a backstage pass and dutifully carrying in the drums in the freezing conditions. Bliss had barely made it to Tulsa through the snow. The pistols had arrived early. They'd driven overnight from Dallas, partly to combat the bad weather and partly because Johnny Rotten had allegedly smashed a Texan reporter's camera, and they were concerned about the wrath of him and the police. Bliss weren't granted access to the Pistols' dressing room, but they could hear them living up to their reputation, swearing and being contemptuous of any questions they were asked. Bliss performed a short and largely ignored set, and Alex was out front when the Pistols came on stage and blasted into their show. It was loud, it was rough and ready, but it certainly wasn't chaotic in any unintended way. Like millions of other youths the world over, Alex had his life changed that evening as Johnny Rotten leered into the microphone, Sid Vicious snarled and sneered, and Steve Jones studiously ignored an entire pitcher of beer that was thrown over him. This wasn't just hype, it was pure excitement. Afterwards, Alex witnessed Vicious and Rotten stubbing out cigarettes on their arms 
as their fee was counted out to them by venue manager Scott Muntz, who was later quoted in the local press as considering them blasphemous, provocative and irreverent. These were all attributes which appealed to young Alex, and when he described his evening out to the other woodsmen, the band's change of direction became inevitable. Within weeks, Alex had switched to electric bass, amps had been bought, Mark built his own cabinet, a drummer had been recruited, Jesse had switched from fiddle to electric guitar, and the band name had changed. Was it arrogance, provocation, or youthful idiocy which led them to christen themselves the Chocks? Jesse, too, had a Choctaw family background, and the name sounded to them both snappy and memorable. From a publicity point of view, in the era of punk, they couldn't have done better. But as soon as the first gig posters appeared, their slogan was Chocks Away, there was outrage in the community. The Oklahoma Choctaw Historical Society declared it a slur on their traditions, while the Tahlequah Daily Press called for the group to be banned. In music business terms, it was a PR triumph, scandal and notoriety before the first gig had been played. Checking out a rehearsal in which she discovered that the cheery folk tunes had been replaced by aggressive three-minute shout-alongs, Lance politely made clear that his restaurant would not be a suitable place for them to make their debut. Business was tough at the best of times, and he certainly couldn't afford a potential boycott. Although keen to support her son's efforts, Aileen agreed, so the Chocks' first gig took place at a local college, where the principal insisted that they were billed merely as special guests to avoid the posters causing further offence. Apart from a few scuffles and some derogatory comments from some of the male students, who didn't like their girlfriends checking out the guy's newly purchased skinny jeans, it went well enough to generate the beginnings of a following. There was certainly no competition in the way of other punk bands in town. Modelling themselves vaguely on the Ramones, the Chocks dyed their hair black, and doing their own bookings played anywhere they could in the area. This took them through various roadhouses, where they were generally received with hostility, which helped enhance their anti-establishment reputation, and a few more high-profile gigs in places like Eureka Springs over the border in Arkansas, and the Crystal Pistol, the newly established punk venue in Tulsa. They even pitched for the Patti Smith band support slot back at Kane's Ballroom, but it was already taken. It was at one of their Crystal Pistol shows that they met Larry Goldberg, who was to become their manager and sign them to his stud record label. Larry fancied himself as in the same mould as Seymour Stein, the founder of Sire Records. Respected for his maverick personality and ability to find quirky and original new wave acts, Stein had built up a su successful empire, and Larry Goldberg planned to emulate him. He was actually a New Yorker, but was visiting friends in Tulsa that night and had read a news item in the local paper about the chocks being pulled over on the highway on suspicion of dope possession. Nothing had been found, but the cops had allegedly pushed them around a bit and spoken to them demeaningly. Alex's mum Aileen, by now becoming quite enthused about the following the chocks were building, had written to a journalist under a pseudonym complaining of victimisation. This led to a nice piece of publicity for the band. The police were probably a bit out of date in what they were searching for, most of the hippie groups they were used to would undoubtedly have had a stash of weed somewhere in their van, 
but the Chocks were a high-energy band and needed to do a lot of late-night driving, so speed was their chosen stimulant. There were almost certainly some little pills flicked out of the window onto the grass verge as they were being pulled over. No matter, they got their piece in the paper, and Larry Goldberg came to their gig. It wasn't particularly Larry's style of music, but he was an astute impresario and can see which way the wind was blowing musically. The chocks fitted the mould nicely, and the next morning, over coffee in Lance's bar, he offered the band a deal. A few days later, the contract arrived in the post. Aileen asked a lawyer friend to look it over. The friend was actually a real estate expert and found it hard to work his way through the dense music business legal terminology such as points and redeemable but not recoupable, but nevertheless said it seemed all right. All the publishing was assigned to Larry. With local friends as witnesses, all four members signed the contract. Cue joy. It hardly seemed possible. Larry had a record producer friend who had a studio in Oklahoma City and after a few weeks working on arrangements and rehearsing, the Chocks came up with ten songs which they considered representative, almost all of them three-minute rants with few chords and therefore relatively easy to record. The lineup was now the classic rock group configuration. Two guitars, bass and drums. For the album title, Rock with the Chocks was rejected by consensus as naff and replaced by the hardly less naff don't knock the chocks, seen as having echoes of never mind the bollocks. The song chosen for a single was the one which least represented their style, a stadium-style rock anthem called Mad and Bad, written by Alex, with a sing-along chorus inaccurately plagiarised from John Lydon. Ever get the feeling you've been had? Baby, baby, I'm mad and I'm bad. The day after Alex had seen the Sex Pistols, they had played their last ever show in San Francisco. Johnny Rotten famously signed off with the question, Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? The Chocks would never have thought about copyright issues, even assuming you could copyright a throwaway remark. And Larry wouldn't have cared anyway. No one had jobs they were committed to, so when Larry recommended relocating en masse to New York, the Chocks were up for it in a big way. The loft apartment they were installed in seemed to be mysteriously rent-free. It was a long time before they realised that it was just one of the many items being put down by Larry as recoupable expenses. But for the time being, life was sweet. Larry's contacts book was strong enough to secure them a residency at CBGB's and regular shows at the Bowery Ballroom. When he sent them on a coast-to-coast -coast tour, all meals and motels were paid for even though the fees at the murky, fleepit venues they played were tiny. The euphoria when Mad and Bad on the stud label peaked at number 42 in the billboard charts on the back of an interview in Rolling Stone and a healthy amount of radio airplay was enough to make the chocks feel they had truly arrived. Back in Talakor, the Daily Press suddenly had a new attitude to them. Chocks away! Local band storms US charts! Alex himself felt quiet satisfaction. Although he normally co-wrote the band songs with Jesse, Mad and Bad had been a solo effort, a throwaway idea, really. Alex was confident that the songwriting royalties would soon start to flow. In the meantime, however, all four chocks were busy being very stupid, and above all, 
in the tradition of young, naive rock groups, boringly predictable. Yes, they were enthusiastically partaking in pretty much every drug that their itinerant lifestyle regularly pushed their way. Cocaine was de rigueur for almost all rock bands at the time, but not everyone went further. Alex was foolish, but in his defence, many young musicians of that era really had no idea what they were getting themselves into. He first tried freebasing crack in the Chateau Marmont Hotel in L.A. after a gig at the Whiskey A Go-Go. The singer of the headline band told him he just had to give it a go and wouldn't believe the high that could be achieved. Everybody was doing it, even elder, venerable statesmen of rock like David Crosby, so it didn't seem much more significant than slamming down a tequila. The band members' consequent mood swings and volatile behaviour, all of the chocks indulged to varying degrees, apart from Mark, and even he developed an alcohol problem, meant that further fame or fortune were doomed never to materialise. Their live performances became unreliable, their second single made no ripples, and Don't Knock the Chocks was a sitting duck for the barbed pen music critics, who gave it a royal trancing as naive and derivative. An inability to deal with drugs wasn't the only rock and roll feature of Corey's personality. He indulged enthusiastically in the delights of the flesh, too. The groupy scene offered itself to him, and he certainly wasn't going to decline. But sometimes he would take liberties which went beyond casual sex. On one occasion in Detroit, he had to get out of town fast when a furious father with a gun was after him for allegedly going too far with an underage girl who had resisted his advances. He'd misunderstood her flirtatious behaviour as being an invitation for sex and didn't like it when she was reluctant. I thought she was asking for it, he told the other chocks. The cool intelligentsia of the New York music scene had no place for these literal hicks from the sticks, so it wasn't really a surprise when, in March 1981, they were called into Larry Goldberg's Manhattan office. That was the day when the Chocks realised that they really should have looked into their contract in more detail before they signed it. The second album, which they had been looking forward to recording, turned out merely to be an option that Larry could have taken up if he'd wanted to. The publishing rights for their songs rested with Larry too, with only a tiny percentage due to the writers. In any case, any royalties due from record sales or publishing had long since been eaten up by their day-to-day -day expenses. The way Larry presented it, he'd been doing the band a massive favour by enabling them to pursue a brief career. But now he needed to cut his losses. For the other three chocks, it was the end of an adventure they'd never really planned in the first place. Mark, Jesse and drummer Brian returned to their families in Oklahoma, got jobs and continued to play local venues in amateur bands. Alex, however, decided to stay in New York, the reason being that he'd fallen in love. It was while attending an acoustic show in the Bottom Line Club that Alex had got chatting with the girl doing the door. Molly was a pretty art student and also a part-time musician who was aware that Alex had been a member of a signed band. Before long, they were partners in life. Alex moved into Molly's tiny apartment in the Bowery. In music, they started writing and performing together. And yes, in crime. They bonded over a shared interest in hard drugs, specifically heroin, 
onto which Alex had moved in the wake of the band's split-up. The couple eked out an existence doing poorly paid support slots as an acoustic duo, but that wasn't enough to live on. Their reputation around town became that of a surrogate Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen, as they eventually ended up emulating the likes of Peter Perrett and Johnny Thunders in a sordid lifestyle funded by their own dealing. That old cliché about how you have to hit rock bottom before starting to climb back held true for the pair, who were struggling to cope with their baby daughter Lucy, born in October 1983. Keen to meet her granddaughter and unaware of the lifestyle change which had affected her son, Aileen drove all the way to New York to bring the young family home to Tallycore for Christmas. That something was wrong soon became obvious. Unmistakable clues were a lethargic baby, a mother who kept dozing off, and a father who had to make regular, mysterious trips to visit unidentified friends, usually late at night. All those fears about what might befall her son in the big city seemed to have been justified. Things had been looking up for Aileen and Lance. They'd gone into business together, and their Sir Lancelot brand had expanded into a small chain of outlets. The concept of burgers and live music had caught on. Shocked and ashamed at what had befallen Alex, Lance was at least in a financial position to offer his adopted son and his new family a spell in a local rehab facility, something that would have been impossible for Alex to fund. Feeling less anxious back in his childhood environment, Alex was in a good position to summon up the willpower required, but Molly's attempts at withdrawal soon petered out. The lure of heroin was so strong that, after a few weeks, she opted to return to New York and the oblivion it offered. Against all advice and contrary to Alex's wishes, Molly took the infant Lucy with her. But it wasn't long before Lance again had to head up to the Big Apple to retrieve the child. After a couple of months, poor Molly was dead, found slumped in the restroom of the Lunar Lounge, after taking an overdose. Nobody knew whether it was intentional or not. With Alex away in rehab, Aileen unexpectedly found herself being a mother again, this time to her granddaughter. Little Lucy, often parked in a buggy in the office from where Aileen administered the Lancelot Empire, gradually regained health. Alex took months to get over the death of Molly, but in a way the pointlessness of it galvanised him until he was eventually able to resume fatherly duties and effectively start his solo career, touring the Lancelot chain with an acoustic guitar, doing a set of originals and a few covers by the likes of Leonard Cohen and Elvis Costello. The climax of each show was, inevitably, a sing-along version of Mad and Bad, the nearest thing Oklahoma had to a state anthem until, many years later, the Flaming Lips released Do You Realize? Predictably, the lyrical preoccupations of Alex's songs tended to centre around the torment of withdrawal, the cruel vagaries of the music business, the agony of lost love, and the joys of fatherhood. A second try at stardom wasn't on the agenda at all until Green on Red hit Oklahoma City in mid-1985. Country rock and its indie branch-offs had attracted Alex's interest, and his set already contained birds and REM covers so he drove over to see the pioneering Los Angeles band, unattractively classified by the press as cowpunk, or more coolly as the Paisley Underground, 
having been joined in 1985 by Chuck Prophet for the Gravity Talks album. In a corridor after the gig, Alex bumped into Green on Red's frontman Dan Stewart, and their brief conversation about music was enough to convince Alex that his next step would be to form a psychedelic country rock band back in Tahlequah. From the original chocks, both Jesse and Mark were interested. Alex purchased a 12-string Rickenbacker and switched from bass to lead guitar. A drummer called Will Sharp was recruited via a notice in the local music store, and once again the search was on for a name. This time it was easier and less controversial. Graham Parsons was the acknowledged king of country rock, and Graham was a drug measurement. So the Grams was a cool name with all the requisite rock and roll connotations. Things moved fast. The country rock that the Grams were doing chimed exactly with what the music industry required at that moment. And by mid-1986, they had completed tours supporting REM and the Dream Syndicate, and also been signed by a proper label, a subsidiary of A&M. Their first album, Desert Grave, largely written by Alex, while not charting, hit all the right notes with publications such as Melody Maker and NME in the UK. They even made the front cover of Sounds, although not with a photo, just a flash heralding an interview on page six. Ironically, despite being recognised far more in Europe than in the US, they never got to tour over there, partly for financial reasons and partly due to managerial incompetence. The Grams were dropped in 1990 having only got as far as demoing their second album but not recording it. They hadn't hit major headlining status, but they had certainly achieved respectability. Sales, however, were more important to the record company than the much-coveted kudos of a cult following. But without that cult following, Corey Zander would never have reached Wikipedia. Alex's friends had called him Zander for years, and Corey Zander was his idea of a cool country rock name. He adopted it when the Grams were signed, partly to avoid unwelcome comparisons with the Chocks, and partly to draw a line under his previous espousal of the darker side of rock and roll. The Grams was a band that was entirely free of hard drugs, although none of them were averse to the odd slug of bourbon to help out with the onstage confidence, and calming joints were a familiar feature of the dressing room. The Grams had spent time in Los Angeles and San Francisco, but their base had always been in northeast Oklahoma. Thus, Corey, as he was forever henceforth to be known, remained close to his daughter Lucy, with Aileen helping out when the band was on tour. But many of the musicians Corey was meeting on the road hailed either from Nashville or Austin, Texas. Corey felt that Nashville was probably a bit straight country for him, but Austin, the self-appointed live music capital of the world, was an alluring prospect. Still not comfortable with the prevalent right-leaning church-orientated ethos of Talakor, Corey was intrigued by tales of this liberal-minded university city where music was king. Austin, so he was told, was home to hundreds of music venues and like-minded blues and roots musicians such as Stevie Ray Vaughan, the most famous, along with the likes of Joe Ely, Doug Sam and of course Willie Nelson. It sounded very much like the place he'd like Lucy to grow up in. And so it turned out that, as Ben already knew, Corey had been a minor luminary of the Austin scene for over 20 years. He relocated there, something Americans seemed to do with ease and regularity, in 1991, starting a new life with Lucy, 
who grew up in a laid-back atmosphere near the Bohemian South Congress area, filled with music bars and art galleries. It was inevitable that Lucy would become both a musician and an artist. When Ben was approached by the UK agent Glenn Wallace then, he was told that Corey Zander was one of the more respected musicians playing in Austin, regularly playing legendary music haunts such as the Saxon Pub and the Cactus Café, on bills including the likes of Alejandro Escovedo and James McMurtry. Ben was aware of the Grams and knew that plenty of Austin musicians, many of them ex-members of well-known bands, regularly toured Europe as solo artists. The audiences they drew tended to be respectable, if not large, but he was attracted by the exclusivity of the fact that Corey had never toured the UK before. So when approached by Glenn Wallace, Ben had said, what the heck, let's give it a go, and wandered up to the station to inquire about putting on a show. But as he struggled with the lack of ticket sales and the non-existent publicity, he was painfully aware of a sensation of having bitten off more than he could chew. other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 Tonight production. <laughs>